You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading is 1 Samuel 20, verses 12 through 23. 1 Samuel 12, 20, 20, 12 through 23. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness... When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die." And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, My name is Ryan. I am one of the parish elders here at Trinity, uh, and I'm also on staff uh, directing our care and counseling. It's good to be here this morning. I don't, I'm not typically the one that preaches. Uh, Brian and his family get to be up in the mountains this week. Uh, so you have me. Uh, let me pray for us, and we will dive into the text. <clears throat> God, it is a, a sweet thing that you count us as friends. And I pray this morning uh, that your spirit would um, 
renew a, an affection and a, a love, a vigor for friendship like this. Pray uh, you'd use my words, um, that my cough wouldn't get in the way, and I pray um, that you would strengthen your church, your people. In your name, amen. Okay, um, so I'm just going to do a little refresher. Last week where we were was in 1 Samuel 19. In 1 Samuel 19, uh, there are three ways that David has been interceded for. Uh, three ways he's been interceded for because um, an evil man was out to kill him. So in response to David being a faithful man, um, to following all that God has asked him to do, uh, an evil man wanted to kill him. So first, first way that happened uh, was, was that Jonathan, he spoke winsomely to his dad. Uh, his dad then swore he would never kill David. <clears throat> Second, um, there, Michael, uh, David's wife, Saul's daughter, um, had deceived Saul, put an image in, Jonathan, in David's bed when Saul went to kill him. So he was also saved in that way. And then third, Saul goes uh, to Ramah to go kill uh, David. And the result is God stripped him naked of his robes. He was tro- uh, prophesying like a true prophet. So those are the three ways that God interceded for David and his life in 1 Samuel 19. And now we come to 1 Samuel 20. And 1 Samuel 20 is a really long narrative. And when you have one really long narrative, what you should pay attention to, um, well, you should notice that, that the author is trying to emphasize something. Um, if he's slowing time down, you should try to notice that he, the author, is trying to emphasize something. So as the house of Saul is headed towards a certain collapse, this story focuses on the steadfast love of two friends. And particularly, it focuses on one good friend, Jonathan. Uh, before he disappears off the map, we get to see uh, his character, we get to see him uh, laying down his life for his friend. So let me give you a summary of this entire chapter, and then we will dive into some more specifics. So verses, if you've, if you've closed your Bibles, uh, please open them back up. I'm just going to roll through this um, so we can get the full context of verses 1 to 42. So verses 1 through 10, David has fled from Ramah, and he goes to Gibeah. This is where the king's courts are. And he goes to Jonathan, one of, uh, well, both David, John, Saul's son, but also one of his great counselors. And what he does as a fugitive is he goes to Jonathan and asks where his guilt is. He asks where his guilt is, and he's willing for it to be examined. Uh, And so here is David, a loyal servant to the house of Saul, loyal servant to Israel. And he um, is hoping to have a more rational conversation than what typically happens with Saul these days. So he hopes that by speaking with this friend, this friend that he's made covenant with, they would move closer to a rational conversation. Um, David knows Saul, uh, and his intentions are kind of beyond saving, but he goes to this friend in hopes of finding help and in hopes of proving what's really, where where Saul's heart really is. Um, And so Jonathan um, 
in Jonathan, he, he may not have actually witnessed any of Saul's attempts on David's life. Uh, you see in verse 3, David say, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this. So here David's saying, hey, you might be being deceived by this as well. Um, and so they come up with a plan. Uh, Jonathan will excuse David, absent from the New Moon Festival. And he will then uh, come to, to let David know um, where uh, Saul's heart is. Either he'll, he'll say, hey, you can come back, or you should flee. You should continue to be a fugitive. So this friendship of great love goes through severe trouble. They are on, in different houses. There's the house of David, the house of Saul. Um, it would seem that Saul is cutting David out. So what does this friendship do? They establish a plan to test the waters. And um, Jonathan actually willingly takes part of, plan, of a plan that might get him killed. So then move forward to verses 11 to 23. This section might feel, uh, actually to many scholars, um, they say, well, this, this might have been a section that was added later. Uh, it doesn't really seem like it fits. Um, but I, I want to argue the opposite. This is a very important section that grounds everything that's happening, that grounds how Jonathan is making decisions in this friendship. So um, pay close attention to these verses we read for our Old Testament reading. Um, verse 12 says, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. And so we, we now witness the creation of a new covenant. They already had a covenant, and now they're creating a new covenant. And again, this is extremely important. Um, it's extremely important for how we understand this text this morning. The second covenant, um, verse 17, says, And Jonathan made David swear again by his love, his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So this covenant, whereas the previous one was grounded, uh, it, was, it was upon the name the house of Saul. Now this covenant is upon the name David. It is upon the house of David. So um, this is really, this, this should kind of surprise us. Because um, what Jonathan is saying is that he wants to make David's enemies, his own enemies. You see that in verse 15 and 16. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Sorry, right above that, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Do, sorry, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. So that's important. Um, Jonathan's making a covenant here and willing to make David's enemies his own enemies, even if that means it's his own dad. Okay, so um, remember Jonathan was the heir to the throne and he, by doing this, was also willing to turn his own inheritance upside down. He was willing to give it away. Jonathan, uh, the end of this scene, says he'll return to this field that David goes and hides in to send him a coded message, which brings us to uh, verses 24 to 34. 
um, which is maybe my favorite scene to try and imagine, where um, you go to this Newman Festival, there's four chairs at the table, and it's a really awkward dinner. Because what just happened was, well, Saul just had his, his robes stripped of him, he was naked, he was prophesying the truth, he was set to kill David, and um, it's kind of like that classic fork scraping the plate kind of meal, where he's saying, well, where, where's David? Um, and so, you should feel the awkwardness of this, um, you should feel just the oddness of Saul's own heart here. So first day, he, he does keep it cool. You just see some of what's going on in Saul's own mind, where he has a bitterness toward David, and he says, well, maybe he's just unclean. Maybe that's why he's not here. Second day, in um, verse... Um, pardon me. Uh, 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? Either yesterday or today. So Saul's using dynastic language here. He says the son of Jesse, which means he feels a political threat. He's communicating to Jonathan, his son, that political threat he's feeling, and Jonathan intercedes. He says uh, in verse 28, uh, he's gone to Bethlehem. He's gone to... uh, go do an annual sacrifice with his tribe. And David knew that this might set Saul off. He made a plan that would reveal what was actually in Saul's heart. Because what would happen if he was getting his, get together with his tribe, this is the ideal time to overthrow the throne. So he's not actually doing that. He's hiding in a field, but he uses that to reveal Saul's heart. We're almost done with summarizing. It's a lot to summarize. Okay, and then what happens is we see two men that are angry. So anger of Saul erupts toward Jonathan, and uh, he calls him the son of a a rebellious woman. He's talking about his own wife. A little bit funny. Um, And it just shows how his own anger is overflowing to other people. He, um, if you can't, be angry at David directly. He's going to tell your mom jokes to his son. Um, and then he throws a spear at his son. It's important to note for later. Um, David had a spear thrown at him twice. And now Saul's spear is thrown at Jonathan. Okay, then we see the anger of a good friend. So we see the anger of Saul, but then we also see the anger of a good friend. And this good friend, what he does is he... Um, his anger moves him to good. It moves him to good. Jonathan doesn't meet fire with fire in response to his father, but he goes and he saves his friend, which takes us back to the field. Back in the field, uh, Jonathan follows through with the plan that they had discussed, David and him had discussed earlier on, um, and he does something that's actually treasonous. He goes and warns the enemy of Saul. So there's a treasonous thing he's doing. Um, and he tells the lad, little lad, um, that the arrows are beyond him, that he should flee quickly. Do not stay, verse 38. So his first action, 
his first action of making David's enemies his own enemies, is, that's happening right now. And David could have told Jonathan, I told you so. That could have been his response. Was, you, now you know the, what's actually happening. Um, but that's not what he does. What does he do? In verse 42, I'm sorry, um, in verse um, 41, he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. So in the face of his own enemies um, being proved to have ill intent, to have a murderous heart, he weeps. And then um, we get to the end of the story, we're in verse 42, where they go in peace. And we're going to come back to that. But what, that, what we see there, um, there's not peace right now. There's actually a lot of trouble. But both Jonathan and David are to go in peace. And that is the opposite of what Saul is able to do in this moment. Saul has no peace. And David and Jonathan have the Lord's peace. Because the Lord is between them. Okay. So that is the um, summary and now we're going to go into three things. Three different things I'd like to pull out here. In face of trouble, first thing we see is we see how a righteous man and an evil man deal with their guilt. See how a righteous man and an evil man, evil man deal with their guilt in the face of trouble. Second, we see uh, the outworking of life and covenant friendship. And then third, we see how trouble reveals the heart. It reveals the heart of man, uh, who, a man who is on his own. And it reveals the heart of men who are found in God. So, first, the righteous man, the evil man, here's how they deal with their guilt. Uh, there's three, there's actually four times, four times in this story that we see David's guilt talked about. Um, the first time is in verse 1, uh, where David says, what is my guilt? Second time, verse 8, uh, but if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. That's David to Jonathan. Um, and then we see it a couple times uh, in the New Moon Festival where Saul assumes his guilt in him being absent. And we also see it in verse 32 when Jonathan says, what has he done? So David's guilt is talked about everywhere. Saul's guilt is talked about nowhere. But who's guilty? Saul. So Saul is the actual guilty man here. Um, and David's guilt is absent. Saul's guilt runs rampant. And the guilt of an evil man can always be seen in how the story plays out. Guilt of an evil man will always be seen in how the story plays out. So in trouble, what, David, what Saul does is he excuses his own pride, his own envy, his murderous heart. And it shows a stark contrast. He's, he has zero acknowledgement of, uh, or confession of sin, potential guilt. He doesn't even mention the Lord's name anywhere in this chapter. And as a result, his sin, it, it doesn't just hang suspended in midair. Um, sin and guilt always go somewhere. And when he doesn't bring his guilt to the, the Lord, where he takes it is, is he wants blood. So Saul wants blood, an evil man who previously sought the blood of David now seeks, is even willing to seek the blood of his own son. So this 
is an evil king, an evil father. He scapegoated David, and now um, he goes mad by um, telling Jonathan the cost of David not being dead. Don't you know what this means for your throne? Um, and he throws a spear at him. Saul, uh, what he's doing here is he's, he calls wisdom folly and folly wisdom. And he, he actually sounds a lot like Cain. In, in Genesis 4, what we see is we see a man envious of his brother, envious of his sacrifice, he kills him. Saul is envious of David. And, and what's interesting is, is Abel was in a field. Uh, Abel was in a field just like David right now is hiding in a field. And Cain's murderous heart overflowed. He killed Abel. And then he snapped at God. Uh, Saul, he wanders around with his anger wanting to punish because of how he's been crossed in his own folly. So Saul, King Saul, he is hyper-focused and he's raging at how a faithful man could screw this up for him. He's willing to murder. He assumes he's in the right. He's godless. And opposite of that, we have David. David is willing for his guilt to be examined. Um, I want you to hear this. Righteous men invite examination of their own guilt. Righteous men invite examination of their own guilt by God and by the house of Saul. They seek counsel. And David hides himself behind a stone heap in a field. So here we have a good king hiding behind a stone heap. Uh, We can assume from the, the rest of the fruit of David's life that what he's doing while he's waiting behind that stone heap is he's praying. So we have Saul wandering about trying to pacify his anger and then we have David He's hiding and he's praying. So this is a good king. A good king with whom the Lord protects. Who the Lord protects. And so David, uh, he's praying. Um, when the Lord is the refuge we run to, um, the peace of God can be found in any trouble that we face. Which of the two models are we more like? Uh, are we quick to confess our sin? Do we seek refuge or do we lash out when our guilt is exposed? Remember the cost of keeping your guilt from other people, of trying to protect it. Okay, so that was first, that's guilt and how a righteous man and an evil man each deal with theirs. And now we have the outworking of life in covenant friendship. If we have one takeaway this morning, um, my, my prayer would be that we see this covenantal friendship and how that love plays itself out. This word covenant, it appears twice in this passage, in verses 8 and verses 16, and uh, it's what the entire story is really about. Uh, the whole passage has men who have a deep love for one another, and usually, just to remind you of, of kind of what covenants typically are doing. Covenants uh, throughout ancient history were initiated by a greater king, great king, with a lesser king. And the first covenant that happened between Jonathan and David was uh, back in chapter 18. And it was upon the house of Saul. So we have a covenant upon the house of Saul. 
Um, and it is with this lesser king, in this situation with David. And it, it's also interesting in that covenant that Jonathan strips his robes and gives them to David. So there's foreshadowing there of what's coming. And now what we see in verse 13 uh, is the end of verse 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. We see a second covenant being made here. And Jonathan, uh, who had a covenant, um, the second covenant is upon the house of David. There's, there's a couple of things we should notice just as we think about this. As we look at this, Jonathan, like, he had a covenant with his own dad. Um, and he was able to honor his own dad up until a point. But what Jonathan's story tells us is that there, there's a place you can't follow that covenantal relationship. There's a place that you can't follow them into evil. When his dad was set um, upon murder upon murdering a righteous servant of his, a servant who was doing good for the house of Saul and for the house of Israel, um, he could not follow him there. Now, what the world will tell you um, is that Jonathan goes completely nuts here. What Jonathan is willing to do here by making a covenant upon the house of David um, is he's, give, he's giving up his own throne. Uh, his own resume was built up to be a great king. And he is willing to give this up. But that is how the kingdom of heaven works. David, who was the least of these, had Jonathan place his robes on him. And now they make a covenant upon David's house. So Jonathan does this with joy. And he bases that on the principle of following God wherever he takes him. He bases that on principle of following the Lord's name. The Lord was no longer with Saul, and his own son saw that. And so uh, the second covenant is sworn in by David's own love. Now the covenantal uh, friendship rests upon the faithfulness of David, and Jonathan was committed to what God had already given to David. And he asks God that he would bless it in verses 13 to 17. He asks God that he would bless this transition. And he keeps steadfast love with Jonathan's house. So first, um, we see how this covenantal relationship is happening with the house of David. And second, we also see how it reflects biblical friendship. Um, this is a glorious example of what biblical friendship does. Now, let's contrast biblical friendship with friendship of the world. Friendship of the world would say, how can I get something from this person in front of me? What can I get from this person in front of me? And biblical friendship would say, what can the Lord give to us? How, how can the Lord, in his providence, give something to us in this? Uh, the former of self-centered ambition, it, it, this is the political norm. It was the political norm then, it's the political norm now. Um, how can I keep my power at any cost? How do I keep those around me? Uh, just puffing up my name. Um, 
But we see Jonathan make a decision based on the steadfast love of the Lord. He was more interested in the kingdom of God than he was in the kingdom of man. So all of his conversations, all of his conversations with his father, they were built up toward him succeeding the throne, but um, instead he is willing to follow the kingdom of God. This is a truly good friend and one who doesn't choose convenience, convenience and power. Jonathan depended on the steadfast love of the Lord. So um, I, I didn't know where else to put this. This, uh, this passage can also be used uh, to talk about homosexual relationships and how there's David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship in this passage and that's what it's all about. Um, and I, this is the best place I found to put this. It's not true. Um, this is actually, even, even what Jonathan's willing to do here shows the opposite of that kind of relationship. It shows the opposite of a homosexual relationship in that it's a biblical friendship is willing to lay your life down for someone, whereas a homosexual relationship, um, it's self-absorbed. Um, there's deep commitment to laying one's life down for a friend here. And that is not what a sexual relationship of that sort does. It's the distortion. This is not true. Um, instead, this is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24, it's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So whatever the circumstance of their friendship, um, it looks to God's providence. Jonathan looks to God's providence and asks, what can we receive from God here? How can we work out godly character? How do we follow God here? And Jonathan, um, he knew the steadfast love of God. Um, He knew that godliness could divide houses. And Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He says that um, his name would divide houses. And so Jonathan's doing that here. He's, He's willing to be faithful to the Lord in the house of David. Um, he's willing to stick out his neck for his friend and maybe even willing to die for it. It seems uh, in, the, in that first scene that Jonathan knows he might die for going and interceding for David in front of his dad. So, um, last point there on this friendship um, is in uh, verses 15 and 16 again. Uh, Jonathan was willing to make his own dad an enemy because his own dad was an enemy of the house of David. So when your friendship is in the midst of significant suffering, as David was, um, as, as David and Jonathan both, fa- both faced here, it begs a question for us. How willing are we to join with friends in suffering? in the house of God? How willing are we to join in them, in in suffering with them? So, uh, Jonathan had a totally um, biblical friendship with David, and then this last point is that uh, this covenant also was costly. The family of God, um, relationships are always faced with costly decisions. They're faced with costly decisions, and this friendship, in in the face of trouble and a costly decision, it centered itself on principle. 
This was a friendship of principle uh, and on mutual faith in God. So Jonathan was willing to, to take a spear for David. He was willing to, to the third time that, that da- sorry, the third time that Saul threw a spear was at Jonathan. And Jonathan was willing to take a spear for his friend. Philippians 2.8 says that, um, it, well, it, it, it shows what kind of friend Jonathan was. Jonathan was a Christ-like friend in that he humbled himself as he was willing, willing to be obedient even to the point of death. Willing to lay his life down for his friend. And this was a truly Christ-like act. Just as Christ had humbled himself even to death on a cross. So this humbling was costly and Jonathan was willing to count all of it as rubbish. All of his inheritance, he was willing to call rubbish for the sake of a friendship and for the sake of the Lord and who he was, his steadfast love. So church, may we create friendships like this. May we create friendships like this. Christian friendship. Those who are willing to call us out for our sin, calling one another out for our sin, sticking our necks out for one another, um, especially when we're doing righteous acts. May we be people who create friendships like that. So we, we first talked about guilt and how evil men and righteous men deal with their guilt. Now we've dealt with how this is a covenant and a biblical Friendship that we should admire and chase after a likeness of. And third, um, we see how trouble reveals the heart of man when he's on his own versus when uh, that, that man is found in God. Anger, um, it's, it's not quite the best measure of whether somebody is righteous or not because we see two men angry here and... Um, one of them has righteous anger, while the other, um, well, his anger is not righteous. It's sinful. Um, so uh, there is anger that's grounded in good. We should note that here. That should challenge us here. Um, the house of Saul has two angry people in it at this new moon festival. And there's a vast difference between each of their anger. Uh, for King Saul, his anger infects everything. It goes, and it just runs amok. He lashes out his own, his own son. He insults his wife, Ahinoam, Jonathan's mother. Calls her a rebellious woman. Calls Jonathan the son of a rebellious woman. Um, and he's even willing to kill his own son. So a man's anger in the flesh, um, it's irrational. It goes on, on fits of rage. And then um, it's, it's totally unlike the anger of God the Father. It's totally unlike the anger of God the Father in that it seeks quick fixes, in that it's hot, um, it has no patience, and it hurts anyone found in the way. So it, is your anger hot? Does it look for quick fixes, or is it patient? Jonathan was slow to anger. He had righteous anger. So Jonathan, uh, he tempered his anger, unlike his father. Uh, he was, well, it, if Jonathan was willing to sit back and just say, well, I, I'm just going to watch this play out for my dad, 
he seems really angry, I'm just not going to engage. That would be sin. That would be a sin of omission. So Jonathan is rightfully angry in that um, in a world of trouble, for him, he um, has to intercede. We too are in a world of trouble, and there are times where we have to intercede. Um, hi, buddy. Um, he defends, uh, so, so Jonathan defends a righteous man in verse 32, saying, where is his guilt? What has he done? Verse 33, he's willing to lay his life down for his friend. Saul hurled a spear at him. And then verse 34, he goes to save a man. He goes, Jonathan goes in his grief, in his great anger, he goes to save a man. Um, and his anger was much more like God the Father. There are many places in which we need to learn to do the same in our own world. Um, we either make God's enemies our enemies, or you make enemies of your own flesh. The greatest difference being that the flesh doesn't center itself on life in God. It centers itself on inconvenience, on quick fixes. So how do you intercede for friends? How do you get angry? It's not whether you get angry, it's when and for whom. So we need to grieve over how the enemies of God disgrace the righteous. And there's, there's uh, anger that can cause two friends to stick their respective trouble out. Um, it can respect, they can stick their respective trouble out and even do so with peace in their hearts. You remember how in verse 42, they go on with peace. Um, the peace of the Lord, it surpasses all understanding. When you're actually in the Lord, your peace surpasses understanding. Worldly peace only happens when your circumstances are okay. But the peace of the Lord surpasses all understanding. So both for David, when he was a fugitive, fleeing, having no idea what would happen for his life, even though he knew he was promised something by God, he flees, and Jonathan goes back into a house filled with anger. And he is able to be at peace. So God enabled them to enter back into their respective trouble with peace. Okay, so those are our three points. I want to do a few points of application, and I'm going to close in the gospel. Um, there's five points I just want to draw out from this for, for us today. First, it's that... Um, don't, don't find yourself calling wisdom folly. Sorry. Don't, yeah, wisdom folly and folly wisdom. Uh, when counting fools as friends, we become like them. So, so cling to wisdom. Cling to true wisdom. Second, um, in our covenant relationships, remember what name you're making for your own house. Remember what name you make for your own house. Husbands and fathers, um, wives and mothers, uh, your actions either show the love of God, show the love of God to your kids, or they show your own pride. Um, church, our relationships to one another, they either show the love of God or they show the love of self. So strive toward true biblical friendship and covenant. Third, be angry about the right things. Uh, do you get angry when God's name is trampled on in this city? Does anger at injustice lead you to get on your knees and pray? 
Does it lead you to speak boldly and wisely? Does it lead you to use your platform, your voice, for good, for justice? Our world, um, what our world does is it, is it trains us to get, to pursue um, justice for injustice, but it does that, like, look at the media. We have to know about the injustice happening in 195 different countries all at once. It overwhelms us. Humanistic anger, um, it can't be pacified. Um, Jonathan used his influence to act where he could on behalf of a friend. So, too, we must use our anger to act for justice, um, using our time well and doing so locally. Fourth, uh, lay your life down for the house of David. Befriend those in the local church. Uh, pour your life out into those relationships. Confront one another in love. Expect trouble in our friendships. And when we expect trouble, um, we can prepare ourselves for how to sacrifice in those relationships. Because um, we know um, from, from the, this book, the Bible, what it says is that there's often going to be times where we need to sacrifice. And last, uh, entrust trouble to the gospel of peace. Receive counsel from your friends um, who challenge you. Jonathan and David didn't enslave their mind to the trouble of their day. Um, Christ was able to grow their capacity in the midst of trouble. So run to God. We should run to God, the God of peace, and trust him ourselves. Okay. Let's bring this to the gospel. How do we see the gospel in this text? Jonathan was willing uh, to take a spear for David, though he was not struck. This story of friendship with a friend who was willing to die in David's place tells the greater story of how God saved the world. Jesus Christ did not die for a righteous man, but he died for all the guilty men in the world. He died for his friends. And Jesus, Jesus Christ, was actually struck. His father was not quick to anger, but patient. Uh, The anger of God worked itself out patiently. It flows forth from his promises, his steadfast love. He doesn't erupt at anyone that crosses him, but instead, what God the Father did to David's enemies is that in Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 20, he, he patiently waited for the time to deal with evil. He patiently waited for the time to deal with evil. And centuries later, Jesus Christ was crucified upon the cross. Jesus Christ took a spear in his side. So take your guilt to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jonathan saw the hope that is in the steadfast love of God, who would be merciful to us because God, Jesus stood in our place. So by these means, the Father crushed all of our enemies at the cross. He crushed our guilt. And by covenant with his blood, we can live at peace in the midst of trouble, church. We can live at peace in the midst of trouble because of the covenant of his blood and what we are about to celebrate at table together. So on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and by the covenant of Christ the King, the good King, we are all welcomed into the peace of God. 
So until every one of his enemies are finally dealt with, we're able to face trouble in the gospel of peace and face trouble feasting at a table together. Pray with me. God, I pray that you would fill this church with, with rich friendships, friendships that speak of your majesty um, and you've, of your goodness and your loving kindness, your, your faithfulness. Um, with the words of this morning, go with us to where in the rest of our lives we, we go and sacrifice for the right things, to where we go and lay our lives down for the good of your kingdom in the world. In your name, amen.